Well, a friend of mine said I should tell you this story. I'm not sure about the merits of it, but it's got something to do with religion and science, so here we go. Apparently, uh, in the uh, 1600s, there was a, a bishop and a scientist, and the bishop invited the scientist over for, uh, for, for dinner, and the bishop was talking at the scientist to try and convince him of the merits of religion. Scientists, being very polite as scientists are, sat there and sat there and sat there, and because he wasn't very interested in what the bishop was saying, he drank a bit and he ate a bit, and he drank a bit and he ate a bit. Eventually, he, uh, you know, he needed to, to get up from the table, but being so polite, he decided, I won't get up from the table, I'll just sit here. Eventually, he, the, the, the impulse got a bit more and a bit more, but he said, no, I won't get up from the table, I'll just sit here. Well, to his great dismay, his bladder burst during dinner, and he dropped dead. Now, what has that got to do with anything? Well, not really, not really very much at all, except to say that as you sit there listening to what I have to say today, you might have a burning desire to get up because you don't agree with something I say. Please don't. But write it down. I'm happy afterwards to speak to anybody about anything to do with science. Uh, a lot of it I'll be just saying, well, I don't know. But, but some things I'm happy, to, I'm happy to speak to you about any issue you've got to do with Christianity and science. Um, thinking about the way that science is presented uh, in our popular media, I don't think you can go much past Star Trek as a, as a show that's developed over a long period of time which shows the development of thinking in the way that science and religion have interacted. When you look at the first series of Star Trek, it was you know, very clinical and had Spock, the Vulcan, very rational, thought through everything. It didn't have a rational explanation. You know, there had to be one somewhere. There was no... There was no belief needed to be had. There was nothing external needed to be had. You just got all the facts and figures and you got them together. Then we moved into the next generation. We have data, the android thing. And he's the same, but he realises that there's something more to being a human being than just rationality and facts and figures. And he's, he's on a quest, personal quest, to find out what more it is. And then you move into the most recent one, which uh, I, I flicked on the other night, and you've, got, you're back, you've gone back in time to the beginning of the, the whole sort of warp era, era where uh, they can travel through space with warp drives. Uh, Einstein would love that, I reckon, sort of making use of the space-time continuum, and etc. that we won't go there. Anyway, you've got another Vulcan character, T-Pole, I think her name is, and she, again, is very rational and clinical. Now, there was an interaction between this this character and uh, the, the medical officer who's some strange creature I, I can't gather where, I don't know where he's from haven't met him before anyway there was a ship that had come apparently from the future and we know that because we're watching the show but, but they don't know that, they're trying to figure out how this ship just sort of materialised in front of them how it materialised in front of them, well the Vulcan the rational says well you know just saying it came from the future is, doesn't get us anywhere, it's not scientific there's got to be a rational explanation we've got to be able to examine all the facts and figures and come up with an explanation. Well, the, the doctor figure says, well, why couldn't it have come from the future? Just because we, don't, just because we, we haven't seen time travel before doesn't mean it can't happen. Now, at that level, the doctor figure is using a belief system. He's saying, just because an event happens that's a one-off event that we've never seen before doesn't necessarily write it off as being something valuable for gaining knowledge. Now, that's actually, that's actually how science works. The most interesting results you'll get in experiments are the ones that don't fit into what you think is the norm. They're the outliers, the ones that hang out out here or out here on your graph. 
Now, they might be because you've made a mistake, but they actually could show you something about some new area of knowledge that you might enter into. But it, it, it requires a belief, a belief that there's something there that you don't know about, that you didn't expect. There's something there. And today I want to spend a bit of time speaking about getting to know what really in science language and science methodology is unknowable. Getting to know God. Getting to know God. You see, for a long time science and religion has, has been portrayed as being in conflict. You know, science is about examination, investigation, experimentation. Religion is about imagination, poetry, things that aren't tangible and never the twain shall meet. But I don't think that's the way that actually we should think about religion and particularly Christian faith and the Bible and science. I think that there's a much better way to think about that, about these two things and how they interact. And that way is thinking about fruitful tensions, areas of interaction between the two which actually reveal more about both of them, reveal more about science and reveal more about Christianity, reveal more about God. Part of the problem with Christianity and science over the time is that both have claimed too much for themselves and too little of the other. Science will claim to be be the only access to knowledge and religion therefore has no access to any knowledge that's worthwhile. Whereas religion will claim it's the only way to sort of understand the deeper realities of the world. Both of those I think claim too much for themselves and too little to the other. So I want to examine just briefly two areas of fruitful tension. Now, uh, the first area is what I might call experimental. Let me ask you this question. Is it conceivable that scientifically speaking we could come up with an empirical research-based examination that would discredit utterly the existence of God Is it conceivable that science could do that job? Is it conceivable that by just looking at the things that we can look at, examining the world that we live in, that we can discredit the existence of God? Well, some scientists would like to think that that was the case, that as we increase our knowledge of the world that we live in, we decrease the need for God and therefore we're discrediting him. We're discrediting his existence. But is it actually conceivable that we could disprove him? disprove his existence. To do that you would need some, a, a remarkable, a remarkable quantity of evidence, a remarkable investigation that presented not just you know, how photosynthesis works and trees gain energy and things like that, that's remarkable in itself. Not just how the stars were formed and, and, and what's going to happen when the stars reach the end of their life and that's remarkable in itself. But to disprove God you'd need a lot of evidence. You need a lot of evidence. See, the grander the claim you're trying to disprove in science, the more evidence you need. To disprove that God exists, you need a lot of evidence. You you need, firstly, to not just speculate about a self-generating universe without a creator God, you actually have to prove that the universe we live in is such a universe. So far the cosmologists haven't even come close. The Big Bang Theory presents uh, a picture of how it might have happened 
and, and we, we come back to thinking, well, we have evidence to a certain point, but nowhere near enough to, to, to actually conclusively say that the universe we live in is a self-generating universe. And how do we explain the fact that we exist at all? Science has no access into those sort of deeper questions. Now, at this point, some may disagree with my whole, my whole uh, hypothesis here that, that we need, uh, that, that, that science and religion can interact in this way. Some may say, well, they're two different, completely different categories. One's looking at fact and one's looking at values. But to go down that path is really, which is, a, it, it's a fairly modern expression of things, although it's been hanging around in philosophy for a long time. It's really to sell short, as I said, both science and theology. To go down that path is to say that science has no value basis and that religion has no factual basis. And it's just not true. If you, if you are a, a, a training to be a scientist, you're involved in a, training to be in some of the science, you will know that you have to bring values to your work. Every time you look at a piece of data, you have to bring value to it. You say, will I accept or will I reject it? On what, on what are you basing that? You have to bring yourself to your work. It's a, it's a fact. Scientists aren't as objective as they would sometimes like us to believe. I know that because I did research myself. It was much too easy to say, oh, well, that doesn't really fit, that doesn't really... That, it's going to be much harder to explain that. I'll just forget about that one over there, which is completely dodgy and not scientific at all. But we bring a value to that. We say, I need to look at this, I need to look at this data for its worth. I need to look at it in its entirety. Why? Because it's a good thing to do it. You bring a value to it. So in thinking about this, science and religion both have values and factual basis to them. But science, I don't think, can come up with an experimental basis for disproving God. So let me come on to the second of these fruitful, fruitful tensions between science and religion. And this is a, a tension in philosophy, the basic underpinning of science as a discipline, as a process of finding out things. Now, much has been said about this and there's whole courses at university, history and philosophy of science and stuff like that, which you could do. But I just want to pick up on one, one thing, one thing, and that is that the scientist as a practitioner has to come to their task with the idea in mind that their pursuit of knowledge can only examine those things that are tangible, physical, material. There is no access of science into the intangible, the non-physical, the non-natural. Okay? There's an, what's called an a priori methodological commitment as a scientist, you have to pursue your science, methodologically speaking, as an atheist. When you are presented with some facts before you, you don't jump to the God hypothesis to explain them. You say, what is the rational for explaining this material world we live in? All scientists, methodologically speaking, must act as atheists. The God has no part to play because that's the job of science, to examine the world that we live in and understand it on its own merits. Now, because that's the way science works, many scientists have then gone the next step and said, because my methodology says that I must act like an atheist, 
Therefore, I will become an atheist. I don't need God to explain the world I live in and my scientific endeavour. Therefore, therefore God doesn't exist. Now, this is kind of like putting the horse before the cart or the cart before the horse, in fact. Because what you've done, you've said to work as a scientist and work effectively as a scientist, to do the job of a scientist, which is to examine the world we live in on its own merits and understand it on its merits, I have to act and not jump to God to explain it because that's not really the job of the scientist, to jump to God. So you've said that's your underlying philosophical basis for doing your scientific work. It's not surprising then that the explanations you get of the world that you look in don't have God in the picture. It's not surprising then that the conclusion that you reach on looking at the world that you live in doesn't actually bring God into the equation. But that's because that's where you started. It's a classic circular argument. We can explain the way the stars work, the universe works, etc., etc., the way trees work, the way ecosystems work without God. Therefore, God doesn't exist. But the problem with that is we've said that to explain these things, we're not going to factor God into the equation to begin with. Well, where does this leave us with these two questions, these two tensions now raised? I think it leaves us with this question then, Can science know utterly, completely, the reality of the universe that we live in? Will science eventually discover everything there is to know? Will science, by pursuing scientific method, discover everything there is to know? Now, physicists love this stuff. They're working on the theory of everything, the sort of the superstring theory, the theory that brings all of the forces, the fundamental forces of nature into play so they can come up with some nifty little equation that will revolutionise the way we look at the world. It, you, you know E equals MC squared even if you don't know what it means, you know, you know it and, and the, the superstring theory or the theory of everything wants to come up with a little equation like that which will explain everything. But is that a reality? Is that possible? Can we know everything? Is everything knowable? Well, I want to say, no. Even if you just look at the physical world that we live in, we cannot know everything. Take this for example. We may, for instance, be able to figure out roughly what the basic diet of somebody in a European village in the year 1300 was. We can look at records of the time, written records. We look at archaeological artefacts of the village. We might look at their rubbish dumps sort of in the village. We can basically come up with a pretty good idea of what their basic diet was. But then to make the next step and say, well, we know what they ate on the 25th of December 1300 is another thing altogether. You have to be a turkey to believe that they were eating turkey on that day. It's just not knowable. You just can't know that. That's in the past. What about in the future? Well, it's the same thing to be true. We can basically get an idea of if we keep doing what we're doing with the environment, where the, where the state of the atmosphere might be in 20, 30, 50, 100 years' time. But to then say, I know that, that uh, California will have a certain atmospheric composition on a certain day in 200 years' time, you just can't know that. There are some things which are unknowable, unknowable by scientific theory. Well, that's just the physical world we live in. There are unknowable things. And as I said, science can't access the non-tangible, 
the non-material. So if there is something to be known in the non-physical, the non-material, that is an unknowable when it comes to speaking about scientific method. Science has no way within its method of knowing God. Now sure, we can look at the world we live in and be absolutely amazed by the grandeur. But even find in it an inherent maybe design or an inherent something which would point to us saying this has got to be more than just a random fluke. This has got to be more than that. But to then make the next step and say we can therefore know God from looking at the world? Science can't do that. Science can't know the unknowable God in this sense. So if God does exist, which I believe he does, how can we gain access to knowing about him? How how can we gain access to a knowledge of this unknowable? If the only way we can know things is by science, if, if that's the only real knowledge, how can we know the unknowable? That's the question I want to ask you. How do we know? How do we know? Well, at this point, uh, I want to go to the Bible. Not surprisingly, because I believe that that's where we get to know about this God. So if you have Bibles there, maybe you'd like to open them up at Acts 17. Now, if you've brought a friend, uh, maybe you'd like to open your Bible up and show your friend where uh, Acts 17 is. We're going to look just briefly at at an encounter that Paul, one of the first Christians, had with a group of very, very intelligent people. Some of the most intelligent people of New Testament times. We're going to look at an encounter that this man Paul, the great preacher and evangelist of the Christian message in in the ancient world, had with the Athenians. Now, Athens in New Testament times was more than just a city. It was a whole state of mind. It's not like it is now where they can't even get it together enough to run an Olympics. Uh, Athens was, was the, the pinnacle of knowledge. It, was, it had so much going for it. It was only a small city, 10 to 20,000 people, but it had so much going for it that people would come from far and wide to meet at Athens to investigate things, to, to, to question things, to get to know things. Athens was the place to be if you wanted to know something. And so it is that we find Paul coming to Athens on his journey throughout, um, throughout Asia Minor and throughout uh, some, of, some of Europe, uh, one day Europe. See, Athens was an independent city, a place for philosophers and thinkers, a place that had a, had a history of such people like Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. It had a prestige to it. It had not just... Not just mentally speaking, but architecturally a brilliance to it. Some of the, some of the things that are there now like the, uh, the uh, Pantheon and uh, such, they're still standing. So it was a city to be looked at and said, well this is an impressive place. And Paul comes to this city. Now he would have known about this city and it's the first time we read in Acts 17, it's the first time he's been there we, we assume. Now Paul himself is no academic slouch. He was, if you like, top top, you know, in his class, in his university. He, he'd studied, he was a thinker, he knew, he knew how thinking worked, he knew how philosophy worked. He, he, was a, he was no academic slouch. And so he comes to this great city, this university, if you like, a place of knowledge. 
and he, he looks at what's going on. And what does he see? Well, he looks and he doesn't just see the grandeur, but he sees something which amazes him. He sees something which amazes him. If you look at uh, Acts 17 and the little number 16, we read this. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Now, why was Paul so deeply distressed that the city was full of idols? Well, I think one reason is because he was a man who knew how to know the unknowable. He was a man who knew how to know God. And he saw these people trying to know God through bits of metal and wood and he thought, you guys just don't get it. How can you possibly think that God is in that bit of metal, that bit of wood? And what's more, it's not just one or two, but the whole city's full of them. And so he was greatly distressed. He was greatly distressed. So what did he do? What did he do? Did he run around with his little axe and chop up all the idols? Did he run around and grab them all and uh, chuck them into the bin? Well, no, that's not what he did. He might, have thought, he might have felt that that would be a good thing to do. But we read in verse 17, little number 17, this is what he did. So he argued in the synagogue, if you like, the Jewish church, with the Jews and the de- devout persons. And also in the marketplace, not just with the religious people, but out there in the marketplace with the people who are thinking and, you know, questing after knowledge. Out there in the marketplace, every day with those who happen to be there, it says. How did Paul approach this problem where these people were trying to know God in a way that was just kind of not working? Well, he used reasoned arguments. He said, look, I, can, I, I want to tell you about this God. I want to tell you about this God. And so he reasoned with them. Now, Christianity is a completely reasonable faith. If Christianity isn't a reasonable faith, then I don't want to be a part of it. But if you're sitting here today thinking about whether or not Christianity is right for you and you think, I don't just want to chuck my brain out, I just don't want to you know, turn off my brain. If, I, if that's what it means to, to come to Jesus and to become a Christian, I don't want to do that. I'm a thinker. I'm at university. I, I'm headed down the path of knowledge. Well, Paul here says, absolutely, absolutely, I want you to be thinking as well. And that's why he reasons with the people who he disagrees with. He reasons with them. And in verse 18, also some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers debated with him. Some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaiming foreign divinities. This was because, it says, he was telling them the good news about Jesus and his resurrection. The word babbler here means one who picks up little bits and pieces and seems to bring them all together in this, this mishmash. This, it doesn't really make sense in their thinking. It's like a bit of a bower bird thing. He's, he's grabbed a bit from here and a bit from here and he's piled it up into a pile and he's just babbling. He's just like a bird picking little bits of seeds up. He doesn't have a reasoned, rational arg- argument, they say. Uh, he's babbling, they say. Well, why was he babbling? Because he was saying something that was so fundamentally different to anything that they'd ever heard before that they had no way of thinking about it. It says there they thought he was babbling because he was telling them the good news about Jesus. And what's more, just, not just about this man Jesus, but about this man's resurrection. This man who some years earlier had died in Jerusalem and now it was being claimed that he rose back to life. Now, that's just ridiculous, isn't it? Everybody knows that that can't happen. This man's a babbler. He's just picking up bits and pieces from here and there and putting it together in this 
but it's just ludicrous just ludicrous and so we go on in verse 19 so they took him, that's Paul and brought him to the Areopagus and asked him may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting it sounds rather strange to us so we would like to know what it means now all of the Athenians and the foreigners living there would spend their time in nothing but telling and hearing something new this was the, this was the university of the ancient world but they're doing a good job really if you want to know something you don't just ignore it when something new comes up you say tell us about that new thought you've got let's try and understand where you're coming from let's try and understand whether or not this thought is a thought not just for you but for everybody let's try and understand the truth about this thought and so they brought him to the Areopagus which is like the, the public meeting of all of the philosophers you come to the public meeting of EU if you were in Athens you would have gone to the Areopagus to debate the new things to hear the new teaching to gain knowledge Paul now wants to tell them about the unknowable he wants to tell them the knowledge that is unknown to them a bit later on he'll start and he'll say you Athenians are very religious people I can tell why? because I walked around the city and I saw hundreds and hundreds of idols you obviously want to get in touch with God I even saw an idol that says to the unknown God Paul now says let me tell you about what you do not know let me tell you about what you cannot know unless God tells you himself well let's just take a step back and have a look at these two philosophers these two philosophical groups that Paul is speaking about the Epicureans and the Stoics now you might think well what, what on earth would they have relevance for me here today how, how, how on earth would the Stoics or the Epicureans have any relevance for me a modern person a modern thinker well I think they have great relevance because there is nothing new under the sun you may think that you're very modern and you're thinking new thoughts but the way human beings work is that there is nothing new sure the technology might have changed and we have access to things in a different way but the basic thoughts that we're we're having they're not that different really to what they were 2000 years ago in the Areopagus see the Stoics believed that everything was just faith and that through patience, self-control not seeking too much pleasure the individual could live in harmony with self-sufficiency with a, a particular brand of individualism uh, they also believed that every individual had a, a spark of divinity a spark of godliness within them now this isn't too different to where the new age goes today every individual has a spark of divinity if you want to know God you've just got to know yourself that was the Stokes what about the Epicureans? well on the other hand they, they taught you eat and drink and be merry because you know tomorrow you're going to die and once you're dead you're dead there is no more that's the final point there's nothing after that so just get on with it live life to the full because this is all the only life you've got they, they say well you know there is no God to worry about we have no access to him so let's just get on with living they don't have any particular basis for their moral framework although they had a moral framework they did what they thought was good or what they what didn't do what they thought was bad but they had no basis for that moral framework they just saw that uh, you know things just happened as random events and you were just placed in amongst it and you just got, got on with living 
Now that's not too, too far removed from what most people in, the, in Western society who have no knowledge of God will think about the world. Just get on with living. Just get on with living. Make the most of it. This is all there is. After you die, the worms come and eat you and that's about it. Well, Paul speaks to them and he proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ. He proclaims to them the unknown God. How possibly could we know God? We can't access him through science. We can't even access him just through thinking deeply about him. The only way that we can know God is if God comes and shows us himself. If God steps out of his supernatural realm, if you like, steps into our physical, natural realm and says, hey guys, here I am. You want to know that there's more to knowing than just the physical world? Here I am. And that's exactly what he did in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul proclaims this good news. You want to know God? Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one who died and was raised from the dead. You want to know that this Jesus was God? Well, look at what he did. Look at the fact that he rose from the dead. You want to see a remarkable event that speaks volumes about this man not just being you know, a carpenter who died on a cross 2,000 years ago? Look at what happened three days after he died. He rose from the dead. Hey guys, how many people do you know have risen from the dead, Paul says? Not many. In fact, only one as far as he knows. And that one is Jesus Christ. And that one Jesus Christ said, you want to know God the Father? The only way to know him is through me. You want to know truth? The only way to know that sort of truth is through me. You want to know the way to be in relationship with God? The only way to know that sort of way is through me. You want life? The only real life you'll have, apart from the eating and drinking and being merry for tomorrow you'll die, you want life that's so much deeper and fuller than that? The only way you'll have that is through me, Jesus says. See, this knowledge isn't just knowledge about a God out there who's distant and impersonal. This knowledge is a knowledge about a person, Jesus Christ, who is God himself, come to show us how to know God. How to know God. This is a knowledge that we all, if we're, if we're dead set serious about people who want to know things, if we're dead set serious about people who want to examine the evidence that put before us, today you are being presented with the evidence that there is something more than just the physical world. That the unknowable God can be known through Jesus. If you, are, if you are serious about being a scientist, don't reject this outlier. Don't reject this one, this blip that seems to not fit with the way that you're viewing the world. Because as I said at the beginning, the blips that don't fit with the way that you're viewing the world or the experiment that you're doing, they sometimes can be the most interesting. And that's what Paul is saying here to the thinkers back in Athens 2,000 years ago. And that's what God is saying here today to you. Don't forget about this blip. Jesus Christ. Now he says a lot more than that, but what he fundamentally says is what I've already said. If you want to know the unknowable God, look to Jesus. You want to know how to be in relationship with God, look to Jesus. Well, the question is, how are you going to respond to that? Yeah, there's plenty of ways to respond to that, but in this passage there are three R's of response. Yeah. Every new piece of information you get, you have to make a response. Now, you might not think you're making a response, but you do. You make a response. The first R of response is outright rejection. And there were some who heard what Paul said on that day and completely rejected it. Verse 32, we read, 
when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, after all, that was a pretty freaky, freaky thing. Like, well, can you, how, how can possibly someone rise from the dead? Some scoffed. Some scoffed and said, you're a lunatic, you're an idiot. Why would I possibly listen to you? And they rejected completely. Now, that might be where you're at today. But don't reject it unless you know for a fact that it's not true. You would be foolish to reject something that has the possibility of opening up a whole new realm of knowledge without knowing that it's not true. So I want to suggest that you don't reject it today. If you're a bit unsure, maybe you go to the second R. The second R is how other people responded. A bit later on in verse 32 it says, But others said, We will hear again from you about this. And at this point Paul left them, but he came back and he spoke to them again. Maybe for you, you're saying, now that's a pretty interesting thought. I don't think I believe it, but it's an interesting thought. But I'd like to hear more about this. Now there are opportunities for you to hear more about this. Regular public meetings of EU. Things that have been organised after this meeting that the science faculty and other faculties uh, groups of EU are organising to help people think more about this Jesus Christ. Think more about his death and resurrection and what that means for you. So if you're not sure, I want you to go for the request more information. Request more information. Now, in regard to that, each of you should have been given a little card thing as you came in. And you can tick on that box, I want to find out more about Christianity. If you tick that box, put your name on it and your, your phone number or details, you're not saying, I've become a Christian today, you're just saying, that's an interesting thought. I'd like to find out more about that. I'd like to know this unknowable. I'd like to investigate it further. Maybe you'd like to do that. The third option, the third R, is the most significant R you could ever undertake in your life. If you're sitting here today and you haven't yet turned to Jesus Christ and accepted him as the way to know this God who opens up the realms of possibility of knowledge in a way that you have no other access to, maybe today you want to do the third R, which is receive. In verse 34 we read of some who did just that after hearing what Paul had to say. But some of them joined him and became believers. They believed the good news that Jesus Christ did come. He was a real person. He walked around for three years teaching about the things of God. He was crucified. He died. He rose from the dead. And through his death and resurrection we now have access to God. Something which is a, you know, I haven't spent much time talking about but is a fundamental to the Christian faith. And they believed him and became believers themselves of Jesus. They entered into that personal relationship with God. They started to know the unknowable. Maybe for you today, you want to take that step. You want to say, I've thought about Jesus for a while. I'm serious about knowledge. I'm serious about knowing things. And this is a, this is a part of the, the knowledge of the world that I live in and the universe that I live in, the reality of God that I don't want to pass up. I want to make that step today. In a minute I'm going to pray a prayer. A prayer that asks God to come into your life in such a way that you will start to know him. A prayer that says, I want to be connected to Jesus. I want to have a relationship with Jesus so that I can know the things of God. It's a simple prayer. It's a prayer that says, God, I accept that I can't know everything. And I accept that Jesus is the way to know you. I believe in him. And I turn to him this day. Help me to continue to live a life that seeks to know you more and more. It's as simple as that. Now if that's for you today, as I pray, you can just pray it in your head quietly. 
And if you do that, I want to suggest that you tick the box on the card here that says, I've decided today to become a Christian. Because that's a, the, the first step in an amazing journey for the rest of your life and for all eternity. The people here at EU want to be with you, want to help you, want to show you so much more than what we can talk about in just half an hour here today. I'm going to pray now. Would you all bow your heads and pray with me? And if, if you are praying this prayer for the first time, know for sure that God, the God that is unknown to you at this point in time, but is knowable through Jesus, is hearing what you say. And the Bible tells us that there is a great party in heaven because you are turning to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that we don't know everything. Father, we, we know that we can only know you through Jesus Christ. Father, today I want to turn to Jesus so that I can know you and know him. I recognise that it's only through him that I can know you. Father, give me power that I might live a life that goes on knowing you for this life and for all eternity. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer today, you have made the most significant step in your quest for knowledge that you will ever make. More significant than coming to university. More significant than that choice you make every year at the beginning when you're enrolling, as I used to do, two people before the front of the line. What subjects am I doing today? Far more significant than any of that. You have made a step which gets you into the real game of knowing more than just the world that we live in. Knowing God and all of his splendour and glory.